Hey! It's this podcast, Bites. We've been promising to come back for a while. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello. It's it's me, Joffrey, and Maddie and Fred. Everybody else couldn't make it today. So we'll just... We will um, <clears throat> talk about the Gilda stories. And as the three of us were just talking about, we probably aren't the best people to be discussing the Gilda stories. <laughs> but... Um, I still think I still think it's well worth discussing. I think it's amazing piece. Absolutely. So, um, you two go ahead and introduce yourselves, and then I'll introduce myself, oh. and then we'll go from there. So I'm Alice Wilfred Earl, aka Fred, aka at Alice Dragon on Twitter. Um, and this one was Michael, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. I'm uh, Matty Tucker at doomed rider on twitter um and yeah we're both in scotland <laughs> <laughs> and i'm joffrey spurl i am not on twitter but you can find me at joffreyspurl.com g-e-o-f-f-r-e-y-s-p-e-r-l.com you can find me on mastodon as well but uh, you know there are only a few thousand people who are on Mastodon. So, how likely is it that anybody listening to this, other than Maddie, is on Mastodon? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, Fred, this was this was your call. So, talk with us about it. So, this was sold to me as being released the same year as Lost Soul, my favorite vampire novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, except it was about black lesbian vampires. Um, so I figured we should check it out. Uh, that is... I mean, that is what it's about. About a lot of other things, too. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, what did we make of it? With the caveat that we are all white people. Um, mm-hmm. All vaguely mask-aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, yeah. We are perhaps not not the best equipped to discuss this book, but what did we what did we think of it? I, for the most part, listened to the audiobook, and I thought the audiobook was very well done. Um, now I'm forgetting completely what the actress's name was. Uh, Audible, Gilda Stories... There it is. Um, I'm gonna... I'm gonna completely screw this up. Aiden Rele Ojo is the narrator. And she's done quite a bit of other stuff, too. Um, and really, really strong narration. I was... I, I really enjoyed the narration. Um, but just because of this, that, or the other thing, I really had to rely on narration. But I think, I think this is, one, a stark contrast to Butler, right, with, um, Fledgling. I think Mm -hmm. this is a very stark contrast of a book to that. And I think just superficially, without getting into 
race or sex or gender yet, but superficially, this is probably the most sympathetic and the most loving I have ever seen a vampire presented as. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. The idea that you, when you share the blood, you leave something in return, right? So you leave the memories, you leave suggestions, you leave good thoughts, whatever. And the fact that they don't slaughter, right? They don't, well, for the most part. There is the... Uh, There's no drive. Right, right. There's, uh, what's his name? In, um... The one in the south end. Yeah. The pimp. I can't think of his yeah. name. Is it Fox? It might be yes. Fox. Yes. And he seems to be the one who embraces, no pun intended, embraces the very traditional slaughtery yeah. mm. aspect of it. Right? Mm. I this it's interesting to be to have read this as close to our rereads of well, at least my reread, Fred's reread, um, of Interview with the Vampire, Vampire Lestat, Queen of the Damned, for upcoming episodes. Um, this is this is interestingly quite the different view, right? Gilda is not Gilda's Gilda's. Gilda's philosophical discussions with herself, Gilda's, Gilda's inner monologue is not focused on what Lestat or Louis are focused on, right? No. This is not a question of good or evil. This is a question of what am I doing with my life? Mm. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to have read this and then go back to Rice, and these are contemporary pieces, right? Yeah. So... It's, it's really, really curious to have that sort of dichotomy between the two. And of course, you know, Jewel Gomez is a queer black woman from the, uh, you know, from, from the U.S., Anne Rice. Presumably, I, I don't think I ever heard that she was anything other than cis and hetero, um, you know, white woman. So it's an interesting take from the two of them to be comparing them. And we'll talk more about Rice later. But, but this I, is something that, that fascinates me about, yeah. about, like, going right back to Varney. Mm -hmm. the, uh, going right back to the vampire, to, to, to Lord Ruthven, mm -hmm. there is this tension in the monster about, mm -hmm. about, about whether one does and when one does and how one does. I mean, it's there in Carmilla. It's... It's not so much there in Dracula, although right. there is the the sadness of Dracula. It's there right through. The, the anguish of being a vampire is, I am a being that was human, and now I kill humans. Right. That is, it's a straight through line through all kind of modern vampire literature. And it's just happened here. Mm. It's like, yeah. I just don't need to. I don't kill humans. It's not a problem. It doesn't. And, and then the question asked is something completely different. Yeah. 
it almost didn't feel like it very much is a vampire novel, but it didn't feel like a vampire novel because that. But it wasn't cheap the way it is in a lot of. Um, I know you guys don't really go into dark romance. I have a soft spot for that. Um, where it's like, no, it's fine. You don't need to kill someone. I'm just immortal and sexy. Right. That kind. Of, like it's not done cheaply like that, where it's just a sort of get out for the moral question. Right. It's like moral question that interests Gomez is something completely other. Yeah. Because one of the things that struck me, and this is particularly when I then went on and read The Vice, um, having never read The Vice before, mm-hmm. is it, to me, it feels like the Gilda stories are written in the same universe as the Vampire Chronicles. I could see that. And the, the, the particular aspect that seems to be going on is, yes, while uh, Gilda and co. are nothing like Lestat, they are very close to um, people like Marius and the much older vampires, yes. the ones who no longer need to kill to live. Right. And there is very much that that sort of um, you know where you know all of the sort of the, you know, the much older vampires in Rice are all looking at sort of you know how do I live, what do I do, you know. Um, and you've got this that community of vampires they they they've got um, is seems much more similar to this sort of aspect. And then it's, you you come down to the idea that if you if that um, uh, that Gomez builds in. Um, the sort of it takes all the same again quite similar powers to the vampire chronicle ones all that mind reading stuff yeah. and stuff and then says well basically if they're taught correctly they never need to kill they can they can heal up the wounds they can right. use their telepathic thing and it's it, which is why it almost felt like this is the same world it's just that all the people that, that we encounter in the vampire chronicles um, yeah, you know, certainly the stat type people are more like Fox. Yes. And just, we've encountered this very different community. There's a steadiness to the vampire community that she presents. Mm-hmm. There. That I, that I think touches on that. Like, the Rice's vampires are very, very volatile. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this sense they just sort of carry on gently bumbling about, running taverns or brothels or... Mm. Or farms, or whatever it is they do, yeah, and and being steady in their relationships, in their relationship to each other, in the way they occupy sort of time and space. There's there's none of the violence. Mm. No. Oh, and there's, there's sort of another thing with this is that is again that sense of power that basically within uh, the Gilda stories this almost wish fulfillment aspect of uh, Gilda where whatever she does she does exquisitely yeah again is very similar to everything that you talk about with Lestat mm-hmm. she suddenly becomes a best-selling author she suddenly becomes she, she could easily become a best-selling pop star instead she likes she limits it to right. she doesn't want to know but she could but that I mean that almost seems a response to I mean you know this was 91 right. Queen the Dad 88 right. so it's you know Oh, I I mean she doesn't mention it, you know, in the in the twenty-fifth anniversary edition, right? She wrote 
a foreword um, in July of 2015. She doesn't mention Rice. She doesn't really mention much in terms of other vampires except she mentions... She mentions Octavia Butler, but she mentioned this is before this book came before Fledgling. Um, so she says, rereading Octavia Butler's work convinced me there was a place for women of color in speculative fiction. Right? Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough's book showed me that vampires could be more than opera caped predators. Mm. And then we get to soon I published that first Gilda chapter in the Village Voice. After reading it, Joanna Russ, who, if you're not familiar with Joanna Russ, um, feminist science fiction author, primarily from the uh, 1970s, who was also um, a major voice in in uh, uh, lesbian feminism and in working on encouraging more women to get into the things they enjoy, right? Don't be don't be reluctant to jump into genre. So Joanna Russ sent me a postcard of encouragement which confirmed for me that lesbian feminism was a legitimate lens through which to develop an adventure story. So, you know, I think I think Gomez is probably aware of Rice and she's just not saying it. Yeah. Right? And maybe that's Maybe that's an assumption. Maybe it's a recency effect of having read this and the rice so closely together. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, it really feels like she wants to do something with her vampires that we haven't seen before. And sure, this could definitely exist within the Vampire Chronicle world. This could yeah. probably this could probably fit in the world of Dracula. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, presumably, I mean, yeah, she's not going to, I, I, I would assume that, this is very much an assumption, but you wouldn't choose to write a vampire novel if you, well, presumably you wouldn't choose to write a vampire novel like this if you hadn't got a passing interest in vampire fiction. Right, right. So, presumably, she had sort of read various things, she'd, and which would make sense that she'd therefore read rice. Right. And... Yeah, I don't think she was making a direct response to, but as the most current, most best-selling sort mm -hmm. of vampire fiction at that time, it makes sense that she kind of absorbs a lot of those. But it's reactive to Rice. Yeah. Yeah. Rice had the influence Rice had on this was a response of, no, not like that. Mm. Yeah. 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 Not about immortal white playboys. Well, well yeah, absolutely, yes. Right, and of course in Rice... The big bad in the end is Akasha. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Who is not even a woman of color. No. <laughs> no. Like, no. As much as I like, as much as I will say that I think Aaliyah was inspired casting for Queen of the Damned, I thought I thought she actually did pull that role off as bad as that movie is. Um, I love that movie. It is terrible. It is terrible. Sure, I I have plenty of movies that I love that are just horrendous, right? But yeah, I think I think she pulled that off. But yeah, Akasha is not a woman of color, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, in the traditional European sense, 
that she's darker skinned, right? No, like, like rereading Queen of the Damned, she, she's not. Is she just? She is quote unquote a white Egyptian, a thing that does not exist. Um, is that in the historical? Because because she loses all her color in being a when she becomes the vampire. Mm. We'll uh, talk about this when we yeah, yeah. We'll talk about no, this. We'll have to we'll have to pay close <laughs> yeah. attention when we get there to Akasha. But yeah. Um Yeah, no, I I mean so in the end, the big bad in Rice is an African woman. Whether she's of color or not, she's an African woman. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Right. And here we've got we've got a African American woman who was a slave. Right, a runaway mm-hmm. slave, um, who is really just showing us very clearly, you know, that these vampires act with more humanity and more love and more grace than the vast majority of humans that I know yeah. do. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I thought this was this was a great. I, I can find very little to complain about with this <laughs> um, probably the big one would be like the New Hampshire thing right 2020 I wasn't really crazy about everything that goes on in there but that's primarily just from a tech point of view it's like eh you didn't forecast that one right <laughs> um, the 2050 stuff I actually found that I would have probably enjoyed more without the, the 2020 part. But um. I, I found the rapidity of decline a little unconvincing mm. um, in, in the world she presents. I mean, maybe I'm being too optimistic here. I think there was... I, I struggled with the future stuff. I've got to say, I found the future stuff quite. It became very quickly very metaphorical and, and less particular. I think mm-hmm. this book had its real strengths. In the, I found the far past less convincing, but the bit from nineteen twenty, nineteen twenty one, through to nineteen eighty one, I found I found just the absolute heart of the novel there. I thought that was wonderfully done, closely mm-hmm. observed very specific, it drew right into character, you cared. Time passed at a realistic pace. It's sure. A big problem I have with my is the passing of time. Mm. Um, and the way that she has to create new lives while trying to hold on to her old lives mm-hmm. was something I found really convincingly done. The the sense that she is still young yes. and vigorous. And the people she has known are dying or they have grandchildren or they are just old or aging it right. doesn't mm. and she has to kind of keep relevance in her life while mm-hmm. things move on mm-hmm. and keeping it in a very short time scale which is the time scale of a i mean 21 to 81 my, my grandmother was born in the, in the 1920s she died two three years ago mm-hmm. that's a human lifetime yeah but it is a human lifetime with yourself as a point of fixity Right. Mm. I thought that was fascinating. That's a really interesting way of getting into vampirism. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Whereas the stuff where she's covering a hundred years, it's a part of it for me. I, I, you know, I, I've read enough of slave narratives and things like that, and I don't know how often those get brought up in literature classes or anything in the UK. But, um, for example, Frederick Douglass had an autobiography, and then there are various slave narratives that have been published over the years as they're discovered. Um, and it, you know, the, the Louisiana 1850s stuff, when she escapes and she's taken in by the first Gilda, um, I, I, that all rings true to me. That all, that all really does seem to fit into place. Oh, I'm not complaining about the accuracy. Okay. But it's the conception of time. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Like, yeah, but the accuracy, it's very well researched. Mm -hmm. That, that wasn't the problem, but it's. It's the sense of one of the problems with fantasy fiction is how do we conceive of time, right? And how do we how do we how does one engage with time as an immortal being? And it's it's a problem I often have with Rice. Um, mm. It's something I like the way Bright handles it in the mm -hmm. lower vampires, uh, particularly long lived, it's four hundred years tops, and that's right. treated as an unconscionable lot. But like, you look at Marius, for example, who is two thousand years old, right? How does he pass all that fucking time? Answer, big hand wave. And I think this really flourished when it explored time as something that you move through in a mm -hmm. conceivable way while not moving. Mm. Yeah. And when she got outside of that, both by going into the past and going into the future, there was a sense, that sense of continuity, of, of, of a closed circle, of, of understanding how to situate oneself in time, mm -hmm. went instead to the generic, because yes, it was a very accurate, um, uh, it was the, the sort of frontiers stuff where she's um, in Yerba Buena, mm -hmm. was, I've, but sort of American dockside stuff that felt very true to that, you know. Mm -hmm. But it felt quite generic in those senses. Sure. How does the time that passes when she's in the brothel mm. didn't feel like real time. It didn't feel like actual <clears throat> years. It right. felt like someone looking at the past and going, "It's the 1850s." Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think I think I think we're probably also seeing Gomez just get her legs right and how she's approaching the piece because if i remember correctly i mean i remember that that gomez is a poet and that's how i knew gomez's name and she's an editor if i remember correctly playwright might be a playwright but i seem to she remember that she's an editor as well um and um you know, it felt like this may have been one of the first times that she was really trying to get fiction. Yeah. And I, I, I think I agree that the most important part is, you know, yeah, the, the time in the brothel is important, but yes, it felt nebulous in terms of the passage of time. 
I didn't get the same feeling in terms of Yerba Buena, just because of the fact that it was so focused on introducing us to Sorrel and Anthony and Eleanor. That bit has quite a strong plot. Yeah. yeah. Which I think holds it together on its own as a sort of fragment. Yeah. I mean, I, in, in, in the fan fiction side of my, my mind, I want to see Sorrel and Anthony actually sit down with Armand. 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 <laughs> Armand, it's relative of my wife's. Um, Armand <laughs> and uh, Marius, and yes. have a long discussion with the two of them. <laughs> yes. I can't see that ending well. No, I can't either. And, you know, I do, I do find it very interesting. They can drink wine, right? Yeah, especially you know. champagne. Yeah. I mean, they really do still enjoy their alcohol. Whereas Lestat makes it very clear that he can't imbibe anymore. So, yeah. <clears throat> so, one of the key things that I got that potentially uncomfortable, and this is interesting when you compare with uh, Butler, mm -hmm. is the question of consent. Yeah. Um, Gilda... And it's the, there is the, you know, bearing in mind there is this very sort of clear ethical, it's an exchange. I, I take blood, I give you something in return. Yes. At no point is anyone asked, do you mind if I take some blood and I'll give you something in return? It's, That's true. Yeah. And then right down the, the key moment is when she basically... I mean, I, I, I could, you know, you could easily, if you wanted to frame it negatively, um, say that she rapes Julius. 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 She, she comes into his house flat and essentially has sex with him while he's asleep without, mm -hmm. without his consent. You know, it's, and it's really interesting. It's really interesting how that's fra not ever framed as a problem. Yeah. And I think that that brings me to a, to a question that I wrote a little list of things I sort of wondered that we might want to talk about, which is generally vampirism is a metaphor either for like financial power mm -hmm. or for sex. Yes. And that's a very broad set of strokes, but like that is two of the things that it is, and, and contagion is another one. But So what is the metaphorical function of vampirism in this book? Because it's not sex. No, it's not. So what... And it's, at times, I think it is political and financial power. Mm -hmm. um, in that Gilda has quite a lot of uh, financial power and she uses it in her community. So what what is the vampiric exchange? It's not contagion, it's not sex, and it's not predatory. It's life and brotherhood. Brotherhood in the inverted um, column. So kind of Christian charity in, in like... I know it's not Christian, but the God, neither of you had a religious upbringing. <laughs> um, the concept of Christian charity that, that one has brotherhood with all with all people and should show and share that. I mean, I, almost more. Um, <laughs> I 
I was just <laughs> taking a brief moment to introduce the dog with his hideous yes. pig there onto the sofa with us. Yeah, the, the, the dog has something to in, to add. Um, but in the the actual bloodkinness of humanity, hmm. that's that's what it, it the, you know, and you've obviously got the the key thing there about the sharing and when, when, when I said brotherhood it's like that sharing of bond with mm-hmm. other women, with other lesbians so is it then that the feeding is giving what is needed without being asked and without expecting to be thanked that, um, and that therefore if you are able to give it is your duty to give which is why consent isn't important, because if someone needs a thing, they shouldn't need to ask for it. One simply provides it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I can see that. Like, is, is that the metaphor we're driving at here? That if someone needs to go home, you are the force that goes to them and be like, you can go home now. Go and, go and rest. Um, I mean, sort of going into, because uh, I, I think, because this is kind of where I was going with the, because um, uh, I said something else as well as brotherhood, um, but, um, it, well, life, that was it. Um, there's an ecological angle here, mm-hmm. which is that it's about a keener attachment to the world and life. There's almost a, a Gaia type sort of thing going on here, but it's yeah. You don't ask the consent of the carrots to eat the carrots. What you are doing is you are providing and giving and taking from the earth, and you do it in an ecologically um, sensitive way. So you don't. Right. Yeah. You know, it's about stewardship. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I I I think Gomez touches a little bit on. Her this in her foreword, right? And in Gilda, I created a character who escapes from her deep sense of helplessness as a slave and gains gains ultimate power over life and death. She becomes a witness over time to the injustices that humans visit upon one another. Alone on the road, she's ill-equipped to protect herself from the brutal and predatory patty roller who would turn her, return her to slavery. The trauma of the escape and the violence that surrounds her path to freedom is a weight she must bear through time. Each new decade brings reminders that the culture has not yet healed the wounds left from slavery and bigotry. Gilda must learn to leave those she loves behind without bending under the further weight of loneliness. Throughout her journey, she tries to hold on to her humanity, humanity and helps and help others find theirs. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think... Which... Yeah, and it's... Because... <clears throat> sorry, do you want to... Well, it's just, just in the next paragraph. The archetype of the vampire is so deeply embedded in culture, it was difficult for a new vision to replace it. Mm-hmm. So, Mm. Yeah, because the end, the ending of the novel in that sort of post-apocalyptic time, right? Um, the the closest feeling to that set, you know, when you've got the sort of the remaining vampires of that of that family all together, um, refusing to leave Earth, mm-hmm. it felt very similar to Margaret Atwood's um, Year of the Flood, Mad Adam. The sort of that the the post apocalyptic more idealistic bits of the Oryx and Crake trilogy. Sure. Um, 
that's yeah and again going down to that sort of stewardship of the earth type um ah uh, thing um so yeah that, and that would therefore yeah that would make an interesting idea for the that um, yeah I, th I, th I think I think in terms of all the vampire novels and stories that we've all read, right, this is probably the one that is the most unique in how it's approaching mm. why it's a vampire. Why write about this vampire? Why write, you know, not a short novel because the text no. is very small. Um, <laughs> um, you know, but um, why why write about Gilda and Gilda's... Why vampire? Why va well, yeah, I mean, so why, why a vampire? Why make Gilda a vampire? Yes, we want Gilda to persist through these decades. We want Gilda to be a witness of, you know, especially late antebellum South into the post-Civil War South and into and through the entirety of the 20th century. So we want Gilda to be a witness of roughly 150 years plus the 2020 and the 2050 chapters. What, why make her a vampire? And I, I, I can see that there is just that attraction of there's a certain power, there's a certain strength, there's a certain bearing that comes with that, as opposed to just saying, oh, she drank some sort of concoction and now she's immortal. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, there is, it feels more, essentially, Gilda is a superhero. Mm. Yeah. Mm. She's, it's, it would, um, you could easily imagine, um, particularly in the sort of, um, the newer, um, ranges or the sort of like DC Vertigo types of thing, one of the uh, comic book series, sure, create doing things similar. Um, but, um, by I think the, the specifics of the vampirism does come down to that that idea about the blood is the life, is the that kinship. I mean, this all again almost going into the, into the rice stuff, the traditional vampires being the kind of the gods of the natural world in the mm -hmm. celtic world that we get again mm -hmm. that sort of that that sort of idea that this is it's actual a spiritual thing they're not this isn't just a um a, an, an immortal who is able to exist as as a at a remove from the world yeah but i guess i guess there's an element of wanting to take an archetype that means a certain number of things. I mean, you know, what is the conception of a vampire? The vampire is pale and aristocratic and predatory. Mm -hmm. And inverting every single one of them, generally male, I mean, I know. Right. Have been, but, and, and, but working on that as, as, an, as a deliberate inversion and going, what if these tools were in others' hands? Yeah. Yeah. And, when she talks in, in the intro about the reason she wrote this, it was a, a catcalling incident um, mm -hmm. that was felt incredibly violent and threatening. Mm. And she said that she could quite happily have killed those men there, there and then, and, yeah. and wished she had the power to do it. Yes. And it's saying if you have the power to kill your persecutors, 
does that then empower you to gentleness? Does that then empower you to reparative justice, protecting others? Mm. And I think it's very interesting that Gilda kills before she's turned. Mm -hmm. She is the girl. Right. She, she murdered, well, she, she kills someone in self defense. Is that murder? Mm. And is haunted by that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it is almost as if she is empowered by that action <clears throat> to become a vampire. Yes. It's, it's yeah. almost the precondition to her turning. Mm. And, and of course, it, you know, it's, it's vitally important for the whole, um, well, particularly slave um, story, but also the lesbian story, that she is turned from someone who is a um, basically a, 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 a almost barely human sort of thing to be used by other people with no power whatsoever mm. to some someone who is essentially the predator true it's uh, and the fact that and the moral aspect of that is the fact that she then um, you know she de she then chooses to do it in a ethical way she chooses it's not yeah she basically it's that whole argument that um if the repressed, if the minority, if women were in control of the world, would they put it in a more ethical way? That that's kind right. of the there, and it's this depiction. It's this kind of very idealistic depiction of well, what if we could do it right? This is how we could do it right. This is how it could be right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, yeah. I think perhaps more interesting argument than simply doing it right and that it's that yes revenge is not sought but what Gilda seeks is humanity mm. she becomes a philanthropist she becomes an artist she becomes becomes a painter she becomes an actor she, you know, she doesn't actually act but she, she works in theatre yeah. mm -hmm. she works in music she writes novels there is that it is an absolute seeking of deeper humanity yeah yeah, I when mean, she never from... lets go of that. Yes, when you are freed from the constraints of fear and fear of violence, mm. one becomes an ultimate human. Yes. In that way. Which... It's... To what extent are vampires wish fulfillment fantasy? You live forever, you will be beautiful, you'll never die will be powerful enough to X, Y, Z. And this is a fantasy of being powerful enough to be perceived by those around you as your fullest human form. Mm. Yes. A thing which is then crushed and attacked in the in the sort of post-apocalyptic is they will never let you have this. Right. They yes. will always want to take, take it yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah, with yeah. all the bounty hunters, yes. Mm. What were they called? Were they just called hunters? I think they were just hunters. Yeah. Um, which, again, um, just as a... Uh, so, you know, it's not to hop back to the Lestat. But you know, Lestat kind of fantasized, got off on the idea of suddenly becoming the hunted. Yes. 
and this this does almost again so that idea that it's set in the uh, vampire chronicles universe well why <laughs> is that you could never have yeah um so just i mean one thing um it's a very self-contained complete story that has mm-hmm. that. yeah mm-hmm. what do you think of the fact that gomez is writing a sequel what She's, she has released a couple of the chapters in various anthologies and journals, and she's writing a sequel. I, none, I, none of them seem to be available in the UK, so I can't get hold of them. Um, the one, the book of short stories she did, um, I was looking it up earlier on. Um, I can't remember what it's called. I know there's work to turn it into a mo- uh, in- into a TV series. Really? Yes. But yeah, so um, in uh, Gomez's short um, story collection, Don't Explain, and in um, like Dark Matter, Dark Matter, the continued volume one and two, um, first chapters from the new. This was. Um, Comment that Gomez made in response to a Tor.com article on the Guild of Stories back in 2018. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, and it's that. So, I didn't. I didn't see that. It seems like a very self. Well, but I can't say. Yeah. Well, maybe. So possibly we need some drawing it. You're cutting out, Fred. I think you might be too far from the mic. Sorry. I can hear. I can hear Maddie. So I didn't hear okay. anything of what you just said, Fred. Um, I said that the uh, um, the future sections feel a little unfinished to me. Okay. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah, definitely. So, like they feel yeah. a little bit rough already, so I can absolutely see why she might want to return to that um now it's nearer in time and yeah and do some and have more to say about it well yeah i mean we're now we're now past 2020 and i think yeah i think that the 2020 of reality is a bit more um dystopian than her 2020 was oh yes um Yes. So, so yeah. Um, I, I I definitely think that that rejiggering that chapter, and I wouldn't necessarily say that the twenty fifty chapter needs to be redone, right? But the twenty, the, the for me, the twenty twenty chapter was the one that really sort of threw me off. But because the the thing about the whole dystopian, um thing is so up until the 2020 chapter Mm -hmm. you get a continued um sense of uh uh 
it's almost like an um, it's an enlightenment narrative. It's the idea that things are getting better all the time, which again is what um, Vice does. Um, yeah, we the all of the horrid all of the horrid things that Gilda grows up with, right. all of the rape, all of the you know that is getting better. You know, no, there there is a um, a black rights movement in the fifties and sixties and stuff that you know, she wouldn't have dreamed of. Hmm? Um, yeah, and there is a movement towards acceptance of um, sexuality. Yeah, and that is that continued progress all the way through. And then it's that that sudden sort of move towards yeah in the twenty fifties bit where actually we're the hunted with the oppressed. And you know what you said earlier on, Gomez. Um, Gomez. <laughs> so, um, Joffrey. Um, <laughs> that. Um, it, you know, it's about. I don't know what you mean by, but I am. Ha! Sorry, Siri. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> stop talking to Siri, please. <laughs> um, but that about, you know. You know that this was an isolated thing, and yeah, that, that all those powers, all that sort of stuff, then comes back to you, and then they become the repressed again. Is absolutely sure. correct. But it was bearing in mind so much of the early and mid bit of the novel is about yeah, or yeah, we say uh, uh, Gilda is almost this superhero with these all these powers that's able to do all the things that if only the oppressed minority were able to do right yeah it, it yeah so, so yeah if you were being unkind you would almost say well this is a mary sue narrative this is a case of oh if only i was able to you know but then actually coming to the 2050 stuff and then saying but no that she's lost all that it's it was it it felt discordant for me I, I did I did certainly feel and I think this is what what Fred was suggesting there of um that stuff in the twenty fifty, that stuff in the future mm-hmm. almost seemed to be tagged in and yes, you do want to sort of have a much more of an explanation about how we get there right. because Yeah, it, it goes from except for that slight confrontation run down with Fox, at no point is Gilda's in a position where she has lost any power up until this point. Right. So you you do get that idea that this is about telling the narrative of the people about the progression, the explorations of what's going on in the civil rights movement and all this kind mm-hmm. of thing. That's, that goes through the whole way through and she is just involved in it in that capacity, but with the additional ability of being able to solve problems that the people around her are don't have the power to do, but then right. you get taken away. So yeah, it's it's. Yeah. It's an interesting editorial decision that she made, or, you know, um, to put the last section in. And I'm fascinated by the fatalism of it. Mm. As in, uh, 
Vampire novels rely to a certain extent on an, on an expectation that the status quo will continue indefinitely. Yes. Because if you've got, what's the point of an immortal being if you've got an apocalyptic catastrophe coming up? Oh, and, and you know, that's how, that's how something like The Masquerade, to borrow from another vampire property, mm. right, but that's how The Masquerade continues to perpetuate itself, right, that the status quo continues. Mm. And that's, you know, when we look at, when we look at Lestat, that's what he's trying to shake up, is the masquerade, right? So, yeah, yeah, if, if things fall apart, then how do vampires continue on? Yeah. I found, so if you look at Gomez's website, she has an entire section. That is just Gilda. So I just dropped it in the chat on the uh, Google Me. But yeah, it's just these are all the Gilda things here. Excerpt from a new Gilda story. Additional Gilda adventures are chronicled below. And of course, um, you know, she says, Since she first broke through into the almost all-male, all-white world of darkness, parentheses. Now, isn't that a contradiction? In the Gilda stories, right, her legion has continued to grow. I assume mm. that Gomez wrote that. Or somebody mm. wrote it for yeah. her. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, so it looks like there's a new Gilda story which is dedicated to Sheridan Lafanu. Caramel eighteen sixty four. And that's on that's an excerpt, but it's on the website. And then there's one in a collection of short stories by Gomez from 1998 entitled Houston. And I don't think Houston is collected in here at all. Um, and then there's one called Storyville, one called Hope on the Mississippi. Uh... Eighty years later, his venom. Okay, and then actually, there's a to be continued a volume called "To Be Continued," nineteen ninety eight, where Samuel and Gilda finally have it out. <laughs> because okay, he, yeah. you know, that we know that something happened, that it came to a head, but I don't recall that we actually hear what the end no. of Samuel is. So, there are bits and pieces spread up part or spread across other other areas oh, and then the there was a there yeah. was a play oh interesting yeah but yeah the implication about samuel is that um what's her name his her um male mentor uh, oh, tells Sorrel. her to yeah so tells her to lay off it and he is going to deal with it right right so the yeah that's that's what's said in the book right so in this, it says, in 1890, the jealous Samuel tried to kill Gilda in a San Francisco alley, but failed. Eighty years later, his venom has not dissipated. An encounter on a city street leaves Gilda shaken, fearful not just for her own life, but the, for the lives of those she loves. Okay. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, thinking less about Samuel, more about Sol, just as a 
because we've, we've talked, we've kind of touched on Sorrow and Anthony, mm-hmm. you said you wanted to see Bar with Marius and Armand. Um, but they and the original Gilda are old world vampires. Mm-hmm. Bird and Gilda are American vampires. Mm-hmm. Representing two very marginalised populations of, of, of America. But how do we feel the old world vampires have portrayed the. Because Fox is an, is an American vampire as well. Right. Um, but they are all white, they are mm-hmm. all wealthy, um, they are kind of gently camp in the way of old world vampires. Sure. So on Anthony at least, and Gilda is sort of tragic tragically red headed. But just How... to just to toss this in for a second, Effie's also yes. old world. That's what I was going to say. Mm. Effie is an old world vampire. Right. Yes. So and she's a is it, is she an ex slave? I think uh... she was an ex she explains it. Wasn't, it, wasn't yeah. she an African slave that was um, brought up in Greece? Yes. Because hmm. she's the she's the oldest of them, isn't yes. she? Yes. Yes. She she yes. predates the original Gilda and Sorrel. Yes. Hmm. So and Effie as well then. But hmm. so I did read this in May. I have <laughs> forgotten about it. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, she's very much brought in the end because your general point is absolutely correct until we meet Effie. Right. Yeah. But. So yeah, so we have we do have old world vampires of colour, but we also have some very archetypal old world vampires mm-hmm. of the, who are yet part of this lineage. I mean, I got very angry with Sorrow and Anthony for just sort of sitting on their asses drinking champagne. <laughs> but that's just me. I I imagined Fraser, right? <laughs> Fraser Crane as Sorrow, right? <laughs> Kelsey Grammer just sitting there. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and like what, yeah. What's the point of them, both thematically and narratively and, and just generally? I mean, so okay, so one of the things that I got, and this it comes down to that idea of brotherhood and things like this again, um, is okay, so they are massively privileged old world white mm-hmm. people who live quite happily in that privilege. However, the fact that they consider Gilda a sister um, is is kind of the big point. The fact that Gilda the first was a white woman mm-hmm. um, and and she just and th- then Gilda the second is not a white woman and that is just taken read and understood is that is that kind of breaking down of yeah or the idea that um racial um differences are a human non-vampire concern and that once we ascend to this sort of more but is that why gilda and bird and effie can't settle Quite possibly, yes. Yeah, very possible. Why they're always searching for where they belong. Yeah, yeah. But why also they're always doing? Yeah. Bird goes and fights with her people. Right. Despite that Effie kind of searches the world, and and tries to cause change. Right. And Gilda is always 
building community. Right. It's not just for belonging. She she does belong. She, mm. she absolutely she yeah. enters community and builds community again and again and again. Right. They don't just sit in a tap and drinking champagne, being like, "Oh, it's lovely to see you. Come and stay." Mm. And you know, I I think I think there's something to be said there about. Anthony defers to Sorrel to make these decisions. He clearly has his view on what's going on and what he would do were he politically empowered to take that action. Yeah. Right? So he clearly has his view on how to deal with Eleanor, how to deal with Samuel, right? But out of deference to Sorrel, he's not going to touch it. Because right. he can't about his place in a hierarchy. Right. Right. Yes. And Sorrel is, you know, as much as he loves Gilda, and it's clear that he does love Gilda. He has he has welcomed her with, with, with open arms and continues to, to encourage her. But he's he's I mean, when you mention old world white vampires, I mean, this is the other image I had of him was not, you know, Fraser, but um, have you ever seen the Maltese Falcon? I know of it. Do you know who I... Sidney Greenstreet was? I know that one. So, Sidney Greenstreet was in the Maltese Falcon. He was in um, Casablanca. Mm -hmm. uh, great character actor. Terrific character actor. Um, and here, let me shoot you the uh, Wikipedia entry. Sorrel also reminded me of Sidney Greenstreet. Yes. Yes, I can mm -hmm. see that. Yes. And just this idea that he has his community, he has his relationships, but he mentally is impotent and can't fix what's gone wrong. He doesn't want to deal with Eleanor. He just doesn't. He's a model of benevolent inaction. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a nice metaphor for... Um, typically morally decent but impotent white liberals yes <laughs> i was just about to to go there yes he is um, he is yeah. a good a good good stand-in a good good model for liberal white americans who yeah. You know, can't we all just get along? Well, no, we can't just all get along because yeah. really slavery wasn't that long ago and Jim Crow wasn't that long ago. And damn it, we're still watching, you know, young black men and young black women get gunned down by police, you know, yeah. for but also stupid in, shit. In our community, there are people acting abusively. Mm -hmm. There are people acting aggressively. Like, Sorrel wouldn't have dealt with Fox. He'd have just been like, well, he's made his decisions. He'd live his life right. as he lived. In the same way he didn't deal with Ellen. Mm. Right. So, because, yeah, if we look at, you know, Sorrel and Anthony 
Anthony, however it's supposed to be. I think it's um, Anthony, isn't it? Well, that's that's how um, what's the name does it in the audiobook, certainly. Um, it's spelled Anthony, isn't it? It is spelled Anthony, but Anthony has a th in it, which is a questionable thing. I don't know if it's a state's um, pronunciation, um, but. Um, The, yeah, you've got those two just quite happily living their very comfortable life. Mm-hmm. Are there any women vampires that are able to do that? I, can't, I don't think the answer is. I don't think the answer is yes. And then you've got the you've got Gil the first, straights everyone by, you know, dying. Mm-hmm. And then yes, you've got, um, and she she was obviously the white woman, right. but she was she was still importantly a woman. Yes. And and yes, you've got Bird, you've got, um, um, who yeah, that, who constantly moving. You've got um, Effie, Effie, mm-hmm. um, and you've got what's her name who, um, the black sheep, who ends up killing herself. Oh, so, Eleanor. Eleanor, yep. Yeah. Um, so yes, that that's sort of an interesting point again, which is the sort of the two white male characters do that particular thing. Um, Julius is, um, you know, by taking the, the sort of travelling around the world type thing, but yeah, no, it's it, uh, it's trying to work out whether that's a um, a thing at all. Actually, just um, so what do we think of Bird? Because she's the yeah. She is the love of the life. She is the constant, um, technically the constant in Gilda's life, but doesn't mean it. But she's never there. Yes, right. And she's there. She's there in New England, right? She's there in the nineteen fifties. Yeah. Um, is she? Yeah. We... Yeah, yeah. In in nineteen fifty five. Yeah. Birds there because she and Gilda are the ones who identify that foxes. Yeah, so she, she and Gilda take down Fox. Right. That is, as far as we're aware, the only time they physically meet after... Um... But Gilda turn, but Bird turns up as an interruption. He turns up halfway through. What yeah. Distracts mm. Gilda. Yeah, but, but isn't that the first time they meet after Bird um, disappears? Back in the 18s. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Right, because there's, there's back and forth, right? Sorrel's like, oh, yes, Bird was just through here a month ago, or whatever, right? Mm. And then Gilda's like, oh, I need to find her. And then I think it's either Anthony or Sorrel or both of them who are like, yeah, hang back. Just let her do what she needs to do. You do what you need to do. Mm. Right, and then it's not until the 1950s... Does she show up at the salon? Is that it? Um, can't remember exactly, but yeah, she does. I can't remember if she shows up at the salon or at Gilda's place. I thought she turned up at Gilda's place. If we're looking at the same edition, Fred, we're looking around. Uh, 
136. Yeah. Gilda backed up as bird. She stood still, taking Gilda in. Yes, Check the back door. Yeah, yeah. Oh, is it slow? Okay, that off. Yeah. Yep. It's, um... I was surprised. There's a lot of female community in this, particularly black female community. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of... There's a lot of lesbians in this. But I was surprised at how little actual sapphism yes. there is in the novel. Mm -hmm. And that section, um, when they go back to her place, it's, is yes. the only explicitly sapphistic. Sophistic? <laughs> is that not the word? Isn't it sapphic? Yes. Yeah, no, it is sapphic. Yeah. Just... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sophistic. This, like, and I know sharing that sort of thing in fiction, but this wasn't... This was a lesbian novel. It was published mm. as, yes. as, a, as a queer piece. Yes. In, in a way that um, Lost Souls, which has a lot of gay content, mm -hmm. sort of was. Because um, it was published as horror, and this isn't horror. No. Um, many things. And it's... And there's obviously the flirting stuff with Eleanor. Mm-hmm. But that is along the line of, a, of, of an emotional connection, rather than a physical one. And I'm not saying I wanted more lesbian sex scenes, although I did. Mm -hmm. um, I... I'm just... I'm just surprised at how much of a backseat. You cut out. What was that? How much what? Of how much of a backseat the lesbianism took in what is a lesbian novel. Well, I mean, she clearly loves Aurelia, right? You there? Uh, yeah, so just give me one sec. Um, I just. This, this evening has been interrupted by a dog in every conceivable. <laughs> <laughs> in every conceivable fashion, he's being a little, a little shit. Well, you know, his 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 uh, routine has been thrown off, so yes. I get that. Um, yeah. she clearly loves Aurelia. She clearly loves Aurelia, right? She yeah. she struggles with the idea of bringing Aurelia into the family, mm. right? So. Is it necessarily the, is it necessarily, is it necessary, sorry, is it necessary for a lesbian novel to have lesbian sex, or are we talking about lesbian love and lesbian sex? I think, I think it's the both, because there is the love. Yeah. But it's how often that love is portrayed as predominantly platonic and at a distance. Do you think the love for Aurelia is platonic? Well, platonic is in non-physical. Okay. It is, it is romantic. It is yeah. very clearly romantic. But it is... There is an enforced distance between the ever in this mm -hmm. that felt deliberate to me. Yeah. Which I find fascinating in a book that starts in a brothel yeah. and is 
intended to be this great reparative work about being in your body and being in the world and being part of this very earthly existence. But it was persistently non-sexual, which I think was rooted around it being around a higher place. You're cutting out. Am I cutting out again? Oh yeah. God, I'm sorry. Tonight. Let's try this. Um, around it being around a higher purpose. Right. Um, and sort of. But vampires are meant to be sexy, right? Right, right. Um, so is that why she doesn't change Aurelia? Why she doesn't embrace Aurelia? Yeah, right? Because she wants. Because so we've got love for Aurelia. Mm. She and Bird are together. Mm. But they're never together. Well, but in the 1950s, they do... Right. They have one brief being in the same place and having sex. Sure. And then they are apart. They're not even sort of together and not having sex. They are not in the same place. But they get to the point where they can hear each other, right? They can talk with one another without being in the same yes. place. What about when we look at... You know, and then we've got Effie as well. Mm. So we've got Gilda and Effie. And then what about um, Hermes at the end? Mm. Yeah. No, it's there and the possibility of it is there. Mm -hmm. But it is it is marginalized within the story about it. I like I mean and I, it's just to sort of compare to, to the to the blurb. It talks about how um Oh, Lord, what does it say? Because, okay, that seems to have vanished. <laughs> but about how these sort of three lovers sort of um, spend 200 years sort of in love. Um, right. I don't know. So, because my understanding is, well, for one thing, the Gilda stories are incredibly popular with um, uh, particularly the black gay community. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and it was written for them. Right. And there's also various things that Gomez had said which suge suggested she was trying to be very, very careful with how she wrote this. She didn't, you know, the, the big thing was um, the danger of um, writing a marginalised group as a typ typically vilified um, villain. Right, right. <laughs> and, no, I get that it's deliberate. Sorry. But, no, so, so and then, but then you can also see her essentially deliberately drawing short of making it too titillating. Mm. Um, she, didn't, right. you know, she doesn't want this to be something that straight white men like to, um, to, to read as a nice bit of porn. Right, yeah. exactly, yes. Yeah, yes. okay, but you can write sensuality without it being pornographic. Of course you can. Sure you can, yeah. And it feels like Another thing that vampire novels are conventionally about is the drive for satiation, the drive for fulfillment and satisfaction mm -hmm. and ecstasy. Mm -hmm. And it feels like in exchange for 
doing good works for 200 years, there has been an absolute surrender of the possibility of fulfillment or ecstasy mm. or intimacy. And I, like, I can see that there is a deliberate decision, and I, I appreciate part of it is not wanting to write a corny novel, yeah. but I'm not asking for a corny novel. I'm asking why does Gilda not get satisfaction romantically and sexually? But isn't that really the... I, I think you're hitting on the core of the book. Mm. Where yeah. is her satisfaction? I mean, yes. that, that really seems to be the ongoing question in her mind. Mm. Which is why she's constantly going from place to place yeah. from character to character. Yeah. yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's, do you, do you exchange ecstasy, the possibility for personal fulfillment right. for community? And I that sat awkwardly with me. There was very little joy in it as a book. Well, it, and I think I think when we come back to the idea of these are vampires who are acting more human you mm. know, than our typical vampire, I think, I think we're, we're looking at a character who is trying to figure out how to make her life more fulfilling. Whether we're looking at her life over the course of a century, you know, of the, you know, 80 to 100 years, roughly, for the average human lifespan, right? Or are we looking at over the course of a century and almost two centuries, right? Gilda is looking for a specific sort of fulfillment and it keeps it keeps being teased right mm. first yeah. it's bird and then it's Eleanor and then we're back to bird but well then it's Aurelia then we're back to bird and then then it's Julius but even then Julius is sort of fleeting yeah, she right. never hugely wants him she likes him as a person she thinks he'd be an asset yeah. to the family, right? Yeah. And he wants her. I mean, he wants her heart and soul. He absolutely adores mm -hmm. her. Um, but even then, he once he's a vampire, he moves on. Mm. Right? So, in one regard, yeah, I definitely think this is... This is her... You know, this is Gilda trying to find satisfaction and i think i think that's partially what's going on in the 2050 story right and i think that's partially what's going on at the end of 2020 is that that you know ending that epitaph for abby and moving on from where she's at in new hampshire and then moving into 2050 and embracing ermes mm. um which is a very spur-of-the-moment sort of thing, right? Extremely yeah. spur-of-the-moment decision. You know, I think... Yeah. I think this is somebody who... Even at a hundred and... Let's see here, 20, 50, 200 years... She was like, what, 15? So she was born yeah. in 1835-ish. So for somebody who's 215-ish years old... Is still 
like all of us, trying to figure out where the hell we belong in all of this. Yeah. Right? I, she's, she's an extremely human vampire. For all of for all of Lestat and Louis's metaphysical, you know, crises and you know, debates back and forth about the existence of God or the devil or whatever, I mean, this is still this is still somebody who's just trying to figure out where she is day by day, and who she is day by day. But there is never a suggestion that she's going to do that. I kind of get the sense in the 2050 that that's where she's headed, though. Mm. Like, she's finally starting to get her head wrapped around that, even though the world is going to hell. Mm. Right. And we've just done everything that we can to completely trash the whole damn place. Which, if Mona were here, she'd probably be more than willing to share the absolute mess that Salt Lake City out in Utah is experiencing because as as the great salt lake is um as the great salt lake is evaporating it's mm. leaving salt right because that it's the last remnant of an inland sea that mm -hmm. used to be in there well unfortunately there's arsenic laced throughout all of that crap oh wow. and when you get a good gust coming across the great salt lake it picks up the salt. So now they're starting to talk about the fact that Salt Lake City may not be habitable in the near future because there will yeah. be these, you know, arsenic dust clouds that come blowing off of the great, what's left of the Great Salt Lake. Yeah. <laughs> she and I have been having discussions on the side about, you know, this sort of Blade Runner 2048 uh, 2049-esque environment that's occurring out there so but yeah I, I think I think that's really where it is is Gilda's really trying to just find her place and get her satisfaction and you know so settle is this is this partly about the general state emotional and um state of a black lesbian in the late 80s very possible as in yeah you know, as in what you get fulfillment and closeness and security from is that sort of kind of brotherhood and kinship and that mm -hmm. sort of really close-knit community mm -hmm. but whether that whether actually a feeling in, in in Gomez herself was that in particularly um, civil rights organizations. Can't, can't hear you, Fred. Sorry, once again, I'm leaning too far back. If, this, if I lean forward, my hip hurts. Right. So I'm back. But um, one of the one of the things I've sort of encountered is this sense that where your marginalizations intersect, if you are in civil rights movements, if you're in cooperative right. work movements, and you are also queer. And also black. Mm -hmm. It's every single point of that serves to isolate you. Because oh, yeah. one of the yeah. things I was going to say about um, lesbian <clears throat> writers from the eighties, of which I've, I've read a fair few, mm. a lot of them seem to be having a very lovely time. You know, they, they were having a great time. Right. Um, 
in in that sort of in the early eighties, at least before um, the sort of backlash following mm. from the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Um, and I suppose if you're not in, if well, if you're in white lesbian spaces and you're black, mm. and if you're in um, sort of civil rights um, and black organizing organizing spaces, and you're gay, yeah, mm. you can't actually be part of that. It's difficult, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even to this day, yeah. you know, you can have you can have very strong anti-gay and lesbian feelings in the black community. I mean, this is, this is something that I've had long discussions with, with people who I consider near and dear to me, right? Mm. Who are just like, well, no, it's wrong. Well, wait, stop. Are you telling me that you as a black man would honestly say that, quote unquote, it's wrong when, let's be honest, why would anybody choose to put themselves in a position where society is going to shit upon them? Mm-hmm. You know, and this is... Like I said, this is a discussion that I've had with people who are near and dear to me. Mm. Um, it's like you can't just out and out say this is wrong and they can choose differently. No. And so to find yourself as a black lesbian, right? In that community dealing with a very, a very Christian, strict Christian, you know, ethos, mm. right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, yes. I have to and imagine, you're right, man. I have to imagine that that is, that is a lot of it. It is a black lesbian, you know, writing in the late radical. 80s, early 90s. Okay. You know. Because it's what seems to be this almost sense is that the whole episode with Eleanor is a warning that she has to kind of run away from. Is that if you and if you basically allow yourself to get into this kind of intense relationship with an individual um it can be toxic and alienate you from the the community and you mean you can and and, and hot white bisexual women are a danger mm. to you and all around you yeah but i mean yeah yeah and i mean just thinking um yeah, particularly where you're looking at the only communities you've got are quite radical fringe communities. Mm -hmm. um, on a very, very sort of different sort of um, environment, just thinking about the quite toxic relationships that Doris Lessing describes in the radical communities that she that um, sure. her parents have in the 80s. Again, it's that sort of this idea that actually forming relationships in there is not a particularly healthy thing to do. Yeah. And so yes, you can you can imagine Gomez and by consequence Gilda um actually resigned to a loneliness and sort of I'm only going to get this fulfillment through community, not through Right. Yeah. As a result yeah. of that? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I think I think we could easily 
I think we could easily consider Eleanor a stand-in for white liberal feminists. Right? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, how well-meaning they are and how well-meaning they, they, they want to shape, you know, black women in this mm. sort of way. I mean, Eleanor is very actively shaping Gilda, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I, oh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm just thinking about, because I read an article recently looking at um, the, um, l the the lesbianism and feminist thing in particularly the states, uh, 70s, 80s, mm -hmm. you ended up with a lot of that quite toxic sort of, you, you got the sort of thing where um, you were uh, you know, um, you were kicked out of the circles if you were interested in men. That that kind that aspect yes. of yes. the thing, and um, that sort of yeah that quite sort of radical um, lack of acceptance of the wider community thing, yeah. Which again was yeah, and I'm sort of thinking this that sort of possibly links in with this and that sort of idea that the reason why Gilda includes Julius, despite the fact she doesn't have that passionate thing with him. Right. Is because of that what that sort of wider sense of responsibility for the wider community. Yeah. 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 It's um. It's the white wealthy lesbians do not have your back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas a black straight woman does. Yeah. As the nineteen fifties. Yeah. 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 I know. I just. <sighs> I know, if you really said something about the whole of human experience, I think she could have had a, a nicer time a little bit more. <laughs> it's what I look for in a vampire novel. I look for people having transcendent sensory experience. Sure. I. So is it a vampire novel? I mean... It's a novel with a vampire. In terms of content, yes. In terms of genre, no. I think... It has that awkward situation of it being, um, in quotation marks, an important novel. It is, and it's what Gomez, you know, set out to write. Yeah, she did. This this isn't someone who intended, who just said, "Oh, I'd really like to write a, a vampire novel because I um, enjoy the genre." This isn't. Yeah, this is someone who wanted to write something really important and used a vampirism right. behind. Um, in this sense, it's it's more of a. Um, it, it, I think that's why it doesn't feel quite as comfortable. It, it's not what you often read a vampire novel for, which, unlike say the fledgling, probably. It, it's sure. It feels it feels more literary than. Oh, it's much more literary than Fledgling. Oh yeah. I think they both conceived of vampirism as a political project. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, but I feel like this is the anti. You know, like all those pictures that go around on Twitter. I know you're not on Twitter anymore, but like. I'm not on Twitter. This, this is a, I uh, a vampire novel with black lesbian main characters. Like yeah. this is the antidote to that. It's like yeah, it is a vampire novel with black lesbian main characters, but it, it's also 
crucially not a vampire novel. Yeah. Like right. Like in in those ones, you get the sense that they've taken a very standard, often dark romance, narrative, mm-hmm. and just gone. These characters are black and they're lesbian, and it doesn't really affect anything much beyond. Mm. Yeah. The characters. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, Whereas this is like, if we are to have a black lesbian vampire novel, it can't be a vampire novel as we understand it. Yeah. And it's it absolutely, it should be included as a vampire novel and stuff like this. Yeah. But it is one of these things that if you're talking to someone who love vam- loves vampire novels, you're not going to immediately say, oh, try this one out. Right. Because it's, it does, it's, if you were doing a very strict award of top vampire novels, you couldn't really include this, because... It's like, is Die Hard a Christmas film, or is it just a film that happens at Christmas? That, that, yeah. Is Alien a science fiction film, or is it a horror movie that takes place in space? Right? Yeah. Same sort of concept, yeah. Yeah. Would Would I hand this to somebody who says they absolutely love vampires? No, not necessarily. Would I hand this to somebody who says they absolutely love feminist literature? Yeah, probably. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. that and yes. that's where it is. It's, um, and I think it's massively important that it does exist in that mm-hmm. way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll just, I was just thinking, this is this is not like Umberto Eco writing name the rose and actually no this as much as this is quite you know this is a very sort of intelligent learned thing this is a crime fiction novel yeah, it's, it's a murder yeah mystery. yeah, it is. yeah. And, and umberto echo wants to be read by the same people who are reading ruth rendell um, right. <laughs> um whereas this isn't that it's and, and that's why i say it's that it's that important novel thing i've not got a huge time for things that describe themselves as literary fiction in that sort of sense normally but this is, I think it's a really good novel, it's an important thing, it works, um, but its position as a vampire novel is almost besides the point. Yeah, I mean, I think... And it clearly has a dialogue with that. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't wouldn't exist without Dracula, it wouldn't exist without Van Nuys. Right. No, it's Um, definitely having a dialogue with Stoker mm. and with Rice, and she knows, I mean, she brings up Right, she calls out uh, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough. Right mm. now, if yeah. we haven't read any any Yarbrough in on the podcast, I don't know if you two have ever read any Yarbrough. I've not. No. Okay. No, not. Um, so she's definitely name checking a feminist vampire mm. author, right? Yeah. Um. So there's something there where she knows she's definitely having this dialogue but Mm. it's not she's adopting going off of one of my recent courses she's adopting the discourse of a vampire novel but it's not it is not aimed to be a vampire novel yeah yeah well overall i think i'm very glad we read it I oh, I think so too. I'll read it again. I, I, I think I will probably end up listening to the audiobook again. I absolutely, I love the audiobook, and if you can get it, if if you get a chance to listen to it, mm. I think it may only be on Audible. Just a heads mm-hmm. up, um, because I think it was recorded through Audible. But mm. um, yeah, I I thought the audiobook was really well performed. 
very well performed, and I really enjoyed it. Um, okay. And, you know, my biggest issue with the... And maybe it's the fact that I'm starting to push 50, you know, but, um, mm. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, uh, the text is little in the print <laughs> version. Yeah, it is. Yeah, okay, good. We've got the same edition. You held it up earlier. Yeah, We've got yeah. Someone, someone, someone else agrees with me that the text is little. Okay, so I'm not just being an old man here. It's um, also quite unfriendly uh, typeset, typesetting, I found. Yeah, but, I'm um, not crazy about the typesetting. I'm also not crazy about the formatting of the uh, the typeset on the on the cover either. But, but it, I will definitely read it at least once more. I yeah. think it's got too much in it not to. Oh, I agree. But, yeah, it wasn't a lot of fun, which it, a book doesn't have to be fun. As we no. said, this one is, it's important in ways that, Yeah. but it, it would have been nice if it could be fun too. <laughs> Very trivial. Point. Gilda deserves more orgasms is what I'm hearing. Yes, Gilda should get to come more. That's what I'm <laughs> Like, I feel it is an important political point that women, queer women, and particularly black queer women, it should mm -hmm. get some fucking joy. Oh, and, and you know, I, she does end the... and close to end, right, with, with Irmis. Mm. She does yeah. kind of end that with the joy. You know, I mean, they still have to get their asses down to Machu Picchu. But, yeah. um... Yeah, I mean, they still kind of end on that joy. She now has Hermes. And Hermes actually does pick her up, right? Hermes yeah. takes her into that final stretch of the trip. So yes. I, I, I think there's something to be said about, about Hermes and about the 2050 chapter that I don't, I don't want to overlook. I'm not, like I said, I'm not crazy about the 2020 chapter. I get why we need her to move on from Abby and see her move on from Abby as a as a individual. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the twenty fifty chapter definitely has more credence to it. I'd like to, I'd like to see a twenty twenty chapter that is more realistic to twenty twenty now that we've actually endured that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God, help us! <laughs> no, I mean now. Now that we have gone through, well, we're are we really through the pandemic? Um, you know, but I think I think that kind of just lends even more of it to the whole thing. So yeah, yeah. No, I really enjoyed this, and I think I'm going to. I mean, enjoy. I'm glad we read it. I'm not saying yeah. that I enjoyed it, but you know, I and I think tracking down the rest of those those Gilda stories would be would, would be, be worth well it. No, yeah. I, I agree. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to see the production at some point. Because I guess that's a separate thing entirely. I don't I don't think it's actually adapted from any of the standing books. Bones and Ash. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd really like to see that at some point. Hopefully it's been recorded somewhere so no yeah. It, 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 yeah i i think i think gomez you know is, is somebody who i knew of she was kind of floating around 
on my periphery, but I had never really paid attention to her before, and this is yeah, this is great. This is terrific. So yeah, yeah tell uh, tell Alice that um, you know terrific suggestion. Yeah, yeah like, no, I will do. Yeah, yeah. So at some point, I'd love to revisit this too. Maybe in twenty fifty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So well, I think it's 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 resonated a lot, and it's I think it's clearly had a huge influence in, um, yeah, in various many circles. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, Gomez talks. Uh, no, it's not Gomez, but um, it's talked about how um, it became really popular with um, essentially the white goth community, and. Um, sure. And it's sort of the reverse aspects, right down to the, um, you know, this is a future podcast as well. Um, it feels like it has informed some of the decisions on the latest Vampire the Masquerade game. Sure. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's, um, it's the thing that Gomez is most well known for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's, um, a lot of people talk with a, with a huge amount of love and respect. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think I, I think it's a it's a strong piece and well worth revisiting and reading again. And I'm I'm thrilled that we read we read it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have anything else we want to say? I mean, I think that. I mean, I think there's infinitely more that could be said, but I think we've covered yeah. sort of yeah. the scope of, of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, yeah. So, with that said, we already know what we're reading for next time. The next one is "Interview with the Vampire," which is kind are of timely. Are we doing timely. or just the one? We are just doing the interview with the vampire. I, th- I think just "Interview with the Vampire" because I think, and I'll I'll get more into this then, but I. Th- I think Interview, despite the fact that it's name-checked in the Vampire Lestat, I think Interview is a separate book. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think it's that. a separate story. And it's, we could, uh, I think my slight difficulty is just the fact that I want to talk about the relationship between all three, but that's probably a discussion to do in the Vampire Lestat. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And if you get a chance, you should check out um, Claudia's story, which was a graphic novel done mm-hmm. about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rice Rice gave it her blessing. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I definitely think it's worth checking out if you can get a hold of, of it to, to look at it. it so that's doesn't... what we're going to do next time? Pardon? So to count. You, it doesn't line up with later um, takes on how Claudia dies. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm looking at you, Vampire Armand, um, <laughs> because there's a just really weird, ludicrous way of how all that, you know, just falls apart that's said in there, and the less Armand said... Armand is an unreliable ab- narrator. He is the unreliable. <laughs> that's what excuses that book, right? Oh, uh, that book. Yeah. Oh, so, 
yes, it does actually fly in the face of what Armand says in that book. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely say it's not it's not a necessity, but it's definitely worth checking out. And of course, oh, we've yeah. got the the TV series coming too. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is it going to air there? Yeah, it's going to air here. I think it might not sync up with you guys, but um, right. we're going to get it. Television series will premiere in twenty uh, set to premiere October second, twenty twenty two. Yeah, interesting. But do we want to meet before this time? Well, we're only doing interview, and at our current rate, yeah, we'll have all had a chance to see that. But we'll try and get. It I, I think we should try and meet before. I think we should get it. We should do it beforehand. Yeah, we th we could then do a mini scope um, on what we think of the. Um, uh, of the uh, series as yeah. a, sort of, like yeah. a, a, mini, a quick quick half hour episode of what we thought <laughs> just gonna be... uh, how many episodes they haven't they don't say in the wikipedia entry what the number of episodes eight episodes so it's a series order of eight episodes so that's that's eight episodes for the interview with the damp vampire yes yeah because I know that there was the, there was the discussion plan of of um, doing a full Vampire Chronicles universe with all the characters, possibly including Jesus. <sighs> Christopher, if you're listening, I loved your mother. She was a wonderful woman. She really was, but. Please kind of throttle back on some of this stuff in the adaptation, and please do not adapt. Do not adapt the vampire Armand the way it's written. Please don't do that. Just saying. That's just my personal opinion. My personal plea to you, Christopher Rice. Please, please, please. Amen. <laughs> Once again, wonderful book, Jewel Gomez. This was terrific. Uh, Gilda stories, and I'm thank you very much. Thank read you. It. And, yeah, thank you for suggesting it, Fred, and thanks to Alice for suggesting it as well. All right. Okay. Till next time, uh, we right. bid you adieu, folks. Bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to this Podcast Bites, an occasional podcast with aspirations of being monthly. Thanks. Your hosts are usually Alice Wilfred Earl, Maddie Tucker, Michael Gordon, and me, Joffrey Sproul. If you're already a subscriber, we're thrilled to have you. Please tell your vampire-loving friends about us. If you aren't yet a subscriber, what are you waiting for? Just visit our website at thispodcastbytes.com for more information. Also, please make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bytes Podcast. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Thanks again. We really do appreciate your support. Make sure to tip your waiters.